So we are in Psalm 100, I'm sorry, Psalm 121. We're in Acts 21. Acts 21, it's a natural mistake, anybody could make it. So Acts 21, I'm reading a book right now on Generation Z. If you wonder what Generation Z is, it's right here. It's, uh, yeah, teenagers, uh, young adults, it's the age of my own children, and I learned a new term in this book. It's the term snowplow parents. So I've heard of helicopter parents. That's, that's, the, that's the generation that raised millennials, right? The, that's, the helicopter parents hover over their children and swoop in to rescue them anytime they're in trouble. Now, snowplow parents are different. They don't wait for their kids to get into trouble. They clear the path for them so that their kids don't have to experience any pain, anxiety, sorrow, or trouble. And there was an example in the book. They said that uh, they've talked to employers who say that they're getting phone calls from people my age, right? Who call them and say, um, my son or my daughter interviewed with your company this week. I need to meet with you sometime this week because I need to make sure you're going to be a healthy person for my child to work for. Yeah, I can't imagine my parents doing that. I'm so thankful my parents didn't do that, but that's that is the tendency of parenting today. And I, I say all that not because we're in, this is not a parenting sermon. God is not a snowplow parent. God could be. God, more than any uh, hyperactive, uh, wealthy soccer mom or baseball dad, he could clear the field of obstacles. God could literally make anybody who ever treats us mean spontaneously combust on the spot. And it'd probably only take one or two and then they'd be done, right? Um, he, could, he could make all of our challenges melt away like ice cream in the summertime. He could, he could make it so that the only fear we ever feel is when we go see a scary movie or get on a roller coaster or see our dad in swim trunks, right? Um, he could do that for us, but he chooses not to. He lets us face some of those things. Only when we get to heaven and see through his eyes will we know how many of those things he spared us from. But this much I know, he doesn't spare us from them all. Life in the real world, it means you experience pain, you experience fear, you, you experience anxiety, sorrow, discouragement, all of us. And some of you are going through it right now. And I know about some of them, and some of them I don't because you hide it well. But some of you are going through that, and those of you who aren't, we will soon. Paul knew this fact better than anybody because other than Jesus, I don't know of anybody else who experienced more personal trial and pain and anxiety than Paul. And yet, and yet, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul's not saying my life is comfortable because of God. Paul's life is anything but comfortable. He's saying the comfort I have, what gets me through these trials, what enables me to live the way I live is God and God alone. So today we're going to talk about what Paul went through, a moment in his life where following the will of God led him directly into pain of a kind he had not yet experienced. Paul was probably of the opinion at that point, I've, man, what could they do to me now? I've experienced it all. Well, he's about to experience something new because he did God's will, right? You've heard that, that saying, the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. Well, that doesn't mean it's physically the safest or emotionally the safest. Paul's going to do God's will and therefore get into trouble, but he's going to experience God's comfort in a very profound way. And we're going to look at that. We're also going to look at how we can access that same comfort, that same peace. So we're in the year 57 AD. 
If you were with us last week, you know Paul is in Jerusalem for the third or fourth time since he's become a believer in Jesus. God has laid it on his heart to, to set aside his business, his ministry of planting churches, and, and instead to go and collect money from all the churches he's planted to take it to the Jews, the, the Jewish believers in the church in Jerusalem, as a matter of, of relief, as a matter of charity. So he's there, he shows up, they rejoice to see him. James, the brother of Jesus himself, is the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he's, he's glad to see Paul. They, they listen to Paul's stories of all that God is doing out in the wider Mediterranean world. He says, hallelujah for that, Paul, but we have a problem. Our problem is there are still some of our brothers who are zealous for the law. Now, what that means is there are Christians in the Jerusalem church who believe it's not enough just to be a follower of Jesus. You have to also obey the complete law of Moses. And when he says that to Paul, and by the way, therefore they are suspicious of Paul because they see him as a traitor to his own people. They see him as a Jew who is now telling Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to follow the law, all you need is Jesus. Now, when Paul hears this, we don't know this because it's not in the text, but I believe that Paul probably heard that and the first thing he thought was, didn't we settle this 10 years ago? Back in Acts 15, didn't we settle it when we gathered in Jerusalem right here in this very city and we settled it? We said, it, you don't have to follow the law. All you need is Jesus. We're going to bring Jew and Gentile together. And yet this problem is still there. Side note, by the way, if you read the letters of Paul, and you see how often he brings up the fact that the law can't save you? This is why. Not only is it true, but it's something he ran into over and over and over again. So, so James says, so these brothers in the church don't trust you, but don't worry, we have a plan. We've got a plan to address this. We're going to show you how to win their trust. There are, there's a small group of men in our church that are going to go through a purification ritual in the temple, couldn't get more Mosaic law than that. And, and so what we want you to do is out of your own pocket, if you will pay their fees and participate in this ritual with them, this will be your way of signaling to all of your Jewish brothers, I'm still a faithful Jew. I still follow the law. Now, Paul, you might be surprised, does not say, why would I do that? You morons, we settled this. No, Paul is there to make peace. He's there to bring Jew and Gentile together. He's there to follow the command of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers. So he says, whatever I have to do. So it takes about a week to get ready for this ritual. At the end of the week, they go into the temple and immediately they find out that their plan has spectacularly backfired. Because there's a group of non-Christian Jews in the temple that day, just happen to be there that day, who are from the region of Asia, which is what we call modern day Turkey. And they know Paul from there because Paul spent at least three years ministering there. They recognize him and they immediately start whispering around among themselves, hey, this is that guy we told you about. He's bringing Gentiles into the temple. And as a side note, a very important side note, if you're a first century Jew in Israel, you've lost everything you have. Your freedom is gone. Another nation rules you. The Romans are on every corner. They, they control every aspect of your life except your religion. If you're a first century Jew, all you had left that was really yours was the ability to go to the temple and offer sacrifices and hear the prayers. So if someone comes in and starts threatening to change temple worship in some way, you get upset because that's all you have. So immediately, a riot breaks out. These, these people from 
from Ephesus and Asia are there whispering, spreading the rumor, and quickly people converge on Paul and they begin to beat him. In other words, it's another day in the life of Paul. So that's where we pick up the story. Verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So put yourself in Paul's shoes. You are being beaten by a mob. Soldiers come and rescue you. They're carrying you into the barracks of the military facility where you will be safe. And what do you do? Well, if you're Paul, you say, stop. I need to talk to these people. Why? These people want to kill you. Why would Paul not want to get out of there as quickly as possible? Let me show you something about Paul that I find interesting. Romans 9.3, book of Romans written uh, not long before this story happens. So in Romans 9.3, Paul writes and he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. If you've ever read the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11 are very, very hard to interpret. But the gist of them is, I yearn for the salvation of my fellow Jews. I know God has called me to go and, and preach to Gentiles, and that's my life. That's what I'm doing. But my heart is with my countrymen. And in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 3, he literally says, if I could trade my salvation for theirs, I would do it. If I could consign myself to hell so that they would all be saved, I would do it. That's where Paul's heart is. And y'all, I got to tell you, every time I read that, I say to God, God, would you give me that heart? Because I don't have anywhere near that kind of love for the lost. I should, but I don't. This is why Paul says, put me down. I need to address these people. And he begins to speak to them. And for a moment, they listen. And he tells them the old story from Acts 9 that we all know so well of how he was a, a zealous uh, defender of Judaism and how he was out to wipe Christianity from the face of the earth. And he was on his way to Damascus, Syria to accomplish that very purpose. And then Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He saw the risen Christ. And Jesus told him, you're persecuting my people. And Paul was struck blind. And, and it, they listened very politely to the story until the point when he says, and then God sent me to take this message to the Gentiles. And then they lose it again. And a riot breaks out once again. And, and Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the tribune, says, okay, get him inside. And they do. And his first thought is, okay, let's beat this guy until he tells us what's making those people so angry. Which sounds like really bad parenting, right? So they're, they're stretching Paul out on the rack. And he plays a card that he rarely has had to play in the course of his life. He says, y'all, actually he probably didn't say y'all, he was a Jew. Um, he says, you understand, of course, that I'm a citizen and therefore this is illegal. Paul was born a Roman citizen three or four times in his life. That came in handy. And this is one of those times because they immediately unbound him. It was illegal to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. So the next day, here's what happens. 22 verse 30. The next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. 
and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So to a Roman like Claudius Lysias, the most important thing in the whole world was law and order. Maintaining the Pax Romana, the Roman peace throughout his territory. And this guy was somehow at the center of a riot. He had to get to the bottom of why it was. So the best thing he knew to do was to get together the leader of the Jewish community. We know them as the Sanhedrin. You know, a generation before, those were the people who had manipulated the Roman system to put Jesus to death. And now Paul is going to face them in front of his Roman captors. He knows he doesn't stand a chance. These guys are out to kill him. But Paul also knows he's a crafty person. He knows of the internal conflict inside the Sanhedrin. See, part of the Sanhedrin were from the Pharisee party of Judaism, and part of them were from the Sadducee party of Judaism. Now, there was a a distinct difference between these two groups. The Sadducees were kind of aristocratic. They were more politically conservative in the sense that they, they aligned themselves with the group that was in charge, the Romans. But they were more theologically liberal. They did not believe that there were angels or demons. They did not believe that there was heaven or hell. There was no afterlife. In fact, y'all want to hear a preacher joke? So so they didn't believe that there was anything after this life, and that's why they were sad, you see? Now, see what you just did? That's called a charity laugh, and I appreciate it. Um, But that's why, this is why preachers are not stand-up comedians and, and vice versa. So Paul knows this, and he decides to exploit it. So in the midst of his trial, chapter 23, verse 6, he cries out, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And so they immediately start arguing over resurrection. The Pharisees are like, you know, this guy is not so bad. He believes what I believe. And the Sadducees are like, there's no resurrection. And back and forth they go. And Claudius Lysias says, well, this is getting us nowhere. And he throws Paul back in jail and dismisses the Sanhedrin. So Paul survives that one. The next day, he gets an unexpected visitor. His own nephew shows up. By the way, side note, this is the only time in Scripture we hear anything about Paul's family. He's the only member of Paul's family that's ever specifically mentioned. We don't know, was, was Paul's, were Paul's family believers in Jesus or not? We'll have to wait till heaven to find out. What we do know is this young man, his nephew, has discovered, or has heard the rumor at least, that there's a group of, of Jewish assassins, 40 of them, who've sworn an oath not to eat or drink until Paul is dead and in the ground. And so Paul knows they're going to find a way to kill me. And so he sends his nephew to Claudius Lysias, the tribune, and the tribune says, okay, thank you, young man. I got to get this guy out of town before he's dead. He can't die on my watch. I'm in charge of him. And so he orders up 470 mounted troops for a midnight ride to Caesarea, 75 miles away. That's the Roman capital of Israel where the governor lives. And that's where Paul will be imprisoned for the next two years. Now, let's take stock of where Paul is. Next week, we'll talk about what happens when he gets to Caesarea. But let's take stock of where Paul is. When Paul went to Jerusalem, he only knew two things. He knew, God is sending me here for a purpose. And number two, when I get there, it's going to be bad. I'm going to experience something bad. Now, Paul knows, I've been beaten before. 
I've been thrown in jail before. I can handle that. He also knows if I'm killed, that's gain for me. I get to be with Jesus immediately. So I imagine Paul's attitude is either I'm going to go through stuff I've been through before already and know that I can take, or I'm going to go be with Jesus. Either way, I win. This is not going to be so bad. What he probably did not expect was that he was in for a prolonged jail sentence. And that's what he experiences. In fact, I'll give you a little spoiler. When we complete the book of Acts, in Acts 28, Paul is still going to be in jail. He's in jail for years. And I don't know, but I just imagine for a man like Paul, that was difficult. That was a new level of difficulty for him. I'm sure his attitude was, come on, just just take me out and beat me or something. Throw rocks at me. Don't, Don't leave me in this cell where I can't go and plant churches and can't meet unbelievers and can't can't strengthen the congregations I've already planted. So how does a man like Paul maintain his hope when he's lost what means the most to him in terms of vocation and ability? Well, I've got a clue, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. See, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that not long after he came to know Jesus, 14 years earlier, by the way, 2 Corinthians 12, also written just a few months before he goes to Jerusalem, the story we're looking at now, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I was was a new believer 14 years ago, and I had this vision. And I don't know if if I was there in the flesh or if it was an out-of-body experience, but one way or another, I went to heaven. I went into the very place where God dwells, where where the dead in Christ go. I went there and I saw what is waiting for all of us in Jesus. And Paul says, I saw things that are inexpressible, things too wonderful to tell. And that should make us feel very good. We want more details. But if Paul, one of the more eloquent people who's ever lived, can't find the words to describe how amazing it is up there, it must be pretty good. Why would God give Paul that vision? Why hasn't he given me that? Why hasn't he given you that? My opinion, and it's just my opinion, is that God knew that Paul was going to live a harder life than I had to live or than you have to live. That Paul was going to need even more courage than you and I. Even more faith than you and I. He knew that there were going to be times where Paul was going to say to himself, I might die if I go here. Oh yeah, I know what happens when I die. I guess I'm not afraid anymore. I'm going to experience terrible pain. Oh yeah, I know what comes after the pain. I think I can handle this. But there was a side effect. The side effect was that Paul became arrogant. And I don't know where the arrogance exactly came from, but I can imagine if I were Paul, what would make me arrogant about this? Number one, I'd say to myself, God has given me a vision that he hasn't given anyone else. I know things that no other human has ever known. I must be really special. That would make me arrogant. You know what else would make me arrogant? Knowing that I was more courageous than any other Christian and knowing that I was willing to take risks that the rest of them weren't. And that would make me feel arrogant, like I'm the best Christian of all. And I imagine that some, something like those kinds of thoughts were going through Paul's mind. And that's why we see what happens next in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And what was Paul's thorn? We don't know. He never tells us. I wish I could have a dollar for every page that's been written as scholars and preachers have tried to speculate on what this thorn in the flesh might have been. And some think it was a physical ailment. Maybe it was the after effects of malaria, like constant headaches. Um, the, the theory that I like the best is that he was slowly losing his eyesight. There, there's the idea that maybe it wasn't anything physical. Maybe it was temptations that Paul faced. And there was this constant nagging temptation that he couldn't quite kick. Or maybe it was a person or a group of people who never stopped opposing Paul. And he's like, God, get these people out of my life. But he never did. The point is not what the thorn was. The point was God's response. The point is that God is not a snowplow parent. See, I as a parent, I hope that I'm not a snowplow parent, but I as a parent, when I see my children struggling, I do, I do want to remove the problems so they can flourish. God doesn't do that. Paul asked God three times. By the way, if you ever hear a preacher on TV or in real life, if you ever read a book, if you ever see any kind of Christian teaching, supposedly Christian, that says, if you pray the right kind of prayer and you have the right kind of faith, God will give you what you ask for guaranteed. You know that you have not heard biblical truth. Because I guarantee you the Apostle Paul had more faith than you do. And he asked God three times to take this away. And God said, no. No, I'm sorry. I can't take it away. Why? Because he didn't love him? No, because he did love him. And he knew. He knows this about us. There are some lessons you and I can only learn through going through difficulties. But God didn't ignore Paul. God didn't just say, okay, you're on your own. He helped him see. He came to him and said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He showed him that from then on, Paul's mindset was completely different. From then on, whenever Paul got sick, whenever he was insulted, whenever he was criticized unfairly, whenever he was arrested, whenever he was beaten, whenever he was almost killed, whenever he was imprisoned, no matter what happened that was bad, he could say to himself, and he did say to himself, okay, God can use this. All is not lost. I know that God is still with me. I know how much he loves me. I will be stronger because of this because my God would not let me go through this unless there was some purpose to it. He won't waste my pain. He could rejoice in that. And that's what kept Paul going. The knowledge that God was using whatever the world threw at him. And, and the hope that something even better was coming at the end of it. And that's why Paul could call him the God of all comfort. Because he knew, no matter what the world does to me, if God is with me, I can take it. And I can get through it and be stronger on the other side. So, how can you and I access that same comfort? How can we develop that same kind of faith and that ability to be comforted in the midst of our hardships? Because as I said at the beginning, I've been a pastor long enough and I know some of you well enough to know that some of you are struggling right now and probably way more than I know. How do you call on God? It's, it's so cliche to just say, okay, God is with you. That's not enough. How do you actually access the comfort of God in the midst of your trials? There are three things that I see in the, in the life of Paul and the teachings of Paul that, that you need to make sure you're doing. Number one, cry out to him. Cry out to him. One of the worst mistakes we make as Christians 
I see this all the time, is some tragedy occurs or some awful uh, difficulty hits our lives and we withdraw from God because we feel betrayed by Him. Lord, if you really love me, you wouldn't let, this go, you wouldn't let me go through this. And the opposite is the case. That's the worst thing we can do is walk away from God and, and step out of church, cry out to Him. Paul writes in Philippians 1, 6-7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let me ask you a question you don't have to answer out loud. Can you stop worrying about something on your own? Can you just make yourself stop being anxious? Stop being anxious? I can't. Once my mind is cranking and working, if I, can, if I tell myself, okay, I'm just not going to think about that anymore, I'm going to keep thinking about it. So when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, aren't you glad he doesn't stop there? He says, don't be anxious about anything. Instead of just worrying, take that same mental energy and focus it on prayer. I've always believed that if the devil's keeping you up at night, when you start praying, he'll let you go to sleep. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't work for you, but it seems to work for me. He says... Take your request to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. Not, the promise is not pray and God will give you what you want. Pray and your pain will vanish. The promise is pray and you'll get peace that others will be confused by. They'll say, how, does, how are you able to be this calm? How are you able to have this peace? How are you able to not be angry right now? Well, because I took it to the Lord and I, I trust that he's got this. The second thing, let God's people bear our burdens. So you started the sermon today with 2 Corinthians 1.3, where Paul calls God the God of all comfort. Well, the very next verse says in verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, the reason God comforts me is so I can comfort you when you go through something similar. That's why God created the church. God created the church so we can be his body on earth, so we can do the work that he would do if he were here physically, but also God created the church so we can bear one another's burdens. It says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So that means, that means that if you're going through a really difficult time right now and the members of your life group don't know about it, you're doing it wrong. There's this myth, this myth that, that, that we're supposed to be like the Christian version of John Wayne. Okay, millennials, Google it. But so, you know, you basically, you never cry, you never afraid, you never express any kind of doubts. That's baloney. Okay, sorry to use Greek on you, but... Uh, that's not the way it works. People who follow Jesus alongside of us should know what we struggle with so they can bear our burdens alongside us. If you're going through a divorce, there are people in this church that have gone through that and they can stand alongside you and say, let me tell you what got me through this. Let me tell you how to make it to the next day. If you are grieving the loss of a loved one, there are people all around this room who've experienced that. And they can sit with you and weep with you and not judge you when you're mad at God because he took your loved one before you thought it was time. If you've lost your job and you don't know how you're going to get another one, if your savings vanish, 
if your dream uh, of life is suddenly gone, if you go through anxiety or depression or some other form of mental illness, whatever your trial, there are people in this congregation who have struggled with something similar and can walk alongside of you, but you have to make it known. Let the people of God bear your burdens. That's one of the ways God comforts us is through one another. And that is why last week's sermon makes sense. That's why sitting in a pew or watching at home is not enough. You have to, you have to invest in relationships with one another. Number three, focus evermore on his word. So growing up, I had a, a very, very good childhood. I had my struggles, but for the most part, my struggles, and I'm sorry, uh, teenagers, and I'm sorry, any children in the room, when you're, when you're between the ages of 1 and 18, you tend to make small things into big things. The first time I faced something really, really big, I was a young adult. I was struggling. I was praying prayers like, Lord, if you're not going to make it better, just let a bus hit me because I don't want to go on this way. I wasn't thinking suicidally, but I was thinking, God, it would be okay if you just you know, dropped an anvil on me or something because I don't like this. And I shared with a minister I respected what I was going through. And his advice was, well, hard times should always drive you to the cross. And that sounded really good, but I didn't know what it meant. So all I knew to do was read the Bible more. I was in a habit at that stage of my life. I was reading a chapter of the Bible a day in the mornings. And so I took his advice to mean, okay, read more, which as it turns out, was a good way to apply that advice. I got home from work. After, after dinner, I would read from the Bible. If I woke up at night and couldn't sleep, I'd open the Bible. That's all I knew to do was just read more Scripture. And I learned something interesting. Y'all listen to this. When you get into the Word of God when you're struggling, two things happen. First of all, you probably don't get the answers you're seeking. I didn't read the Bible and go, oh, okay, that's exactly the problem I'm struggling with. God wrote about it right here. Sometimes that happens, but there's lots of problems you struggle with that aren't in Scripture. The second thing I found out is God may not answer the questions you're asking, but what He does instead is He tells you who He is. You may not learn the answers to why you're going through what you're going through, but you'll learn a whole lot more about Him. And as it turns out, as I look back on that time from nearly 30 years ago, as I look back on that time, I think, that's exactly what I needed because that was the stage of my life when I learned to follow God step by step, when I learned to actually hear his voice, when I learned to actually live with him day by day. That, I mean, I wouldn't want to go back to that time. I wouldn't want to relive it, but I also wouldn't want God to take that away from me because I needed that experience. And when you read the Word of God and you get to know Him for who He is, you learn that His love is more than a cliche. Anybody can stand up and say, God loves you. But once you experience that love, once you see the depth of that love, it changes the way you look at suffering, just like it did for Paul. Because we see, for instance, we see Jesus on the cross pushing up against those nails through His feet just to gather in enough air in His lungs to speak the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and lots of people have speculated why he said that. It was obviously important to him to express that thought. Here's what I think he was saying. Right now, I am being rejected so you can be accepted. Right now, I am being completely thrown out of the family of God so you can be brought in. And I'm doing this because I love you. 
and it's worth it to me. Now ask yourself the question, if there is a God so powerful he created the universe with spoken words, and if he loves you that much, don't you think that means you can trust him when your life starts to fall apart? 